0: Father, thank you for my privilege of standing and opening your word and teaching it. And thank you, Father, that like the others here, I have received the blessing of service from others, from those who have contributed their gifts this morning and throughout the week. It's so encouraging, Father, to see your word brought to reality, that you would tell us, Father, that we each bring a gift into the body, we each have an opportunity to contribute, and you use each of us, Father, to your glory in that way. And then when we gather, we see it. We see each and every one of us participating in some way. And we pray, Father, that you would continue that pattern, that you'd give us the, the blessing that is Okio Bible Church. It's a small place, Father, where everyone's gifts matter and everyone's contribution is noted and the body is made stronger by each person's contribution. Thank you, Father, that you've given us the blessing of this kind of environment, this kind of setting in which we can learn but also practice what we learn. And this morning, as we will always do, Father, as we are committed to doing, we want to open your Word. We want to study what's on these pages before us. We want to learn it properly and according to the Spirit's guidance. But we do these things, Father. We remind ourselves each week that as we do these things, our study has an ultimate purpose greater than merely the knowledge that it provides. That it does no good, Father, if it leaves us self-satisfied. It does no good if it's simply convinces us that we know things and are smart because of these things those are those are not the means father by which you will glorify your name you want us father to take what we've learned and by the spirit's power working in us to conform to the image of christ and to become that that beacon of light and that ambassador into the world that's your call father we want to use what we learned today to help in that regard so i pray father you'd show us how that can be done and continue to encourage us and And uh, incline us, Father, toward a life of service, both here and in the world around us. I pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. You remember the soap opera cliffhanger we left off with at the end of last week? We had the fundamental question of chapter 25 laying before us on the pages of the text. Who will inherit the promises and the blessings contained in the birthright of Isaac? If I had had a Wurlitzer up here, I would have asked John to start the organ sound behind me at about this point because you would want to hear that here. You know, Who will it be? Will it be the older? Will it be Esau? The natural choice, the one who's the oldest, and therefore he meets the world's expectations for who should inherit the blessing. He's the skilled hunter. He's the one Dad loves because Dad has this taste or this desire for wild game. Will it be Esau? Or will it be the younger? Will it be Jacob? The one God has said will receive the birthright, despite the fact that he's not the natural, logical choice. The one that the scriptures described as peaceful, blameless, living in tents with Rebecca, his mother, who loves him. Well, we know the father has the right to choose according to custom and according to laws of the time. So it'll ultimately come down to Isaac's decision, or so it seems. And given how Isaac prefers Esau, well, it stands to reason that it'll be Esau to receive the birthright, at least That's how it's playing out so far. But God has told Rebekah that it can't be Esau. It has to be the younger. It has to be Jacob. And she knows, at least at this point, that her husband's preference goes a different direction. So she's likely worried about how this is going to turn out. For she knows how it ought to be. So the dilemma before us is, how does God work through the sinful choices and desires of men? Because frankly, that's all he has to work with. That's one of my favorite sayings. God works with sinful people because that's all he has. So today we witness the first step of how God begins to resolve this dilemma. But I'll tell you up front, just to set your expectations, we don't actually see the full story play out for two more chapters. So it won't be until chapter 27 that we really finish our examination of this moment. But we certainly get a good start on it this morning. So go with me into chapter 25 of Genesis. We'll pick up in verse 29, which is where we left off. And we'll read from there, just two verses to start. Verse 29, when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. And therefore his name was called Edom. Well, the scene here takes a few moments, I think, to set up properly in our mind's eye. In fact, I would encourage you at this moment to start imagining this scene, if you will. Hopefully you've already done that. What are you seeing in your mind's eye as you imagine this moment? Jacob in the tent, cooking a stew, and Esau comes into the tent from the field. Now I'm guessing that the stereotypes that we talked about last week, the stereotypes that we usually carry with us around Esau and Jacob and who they really were and so on, those stereotypes are working against us right now again. That's my assumption. Because in your mind's eye, I think you're starting to assign subtle meaning to each of these person's actions and their words. And if you're not careful, if we don't check back in with the text of Scripture, we're likely to let those stereotypes override what the text itself is actually saying. For example, here's a test, and I wouldn't mind seeing some hands if you're interested in answering. How many of you are imagining Jacob wearing an apron right now? No one? Here's a better one. How many of you have assumed that Esau is taller? That's just where you start to go. We start to assign these very subtle differences of appearance or thought or action based on an overall picture that's already present in our mind about who these men are and what's going on in their lives. So it's often the case, as I've asked that question, that people have this view of Jacob and a view of Esau that play to the stereotypes, even at this point. And the apron one was a bit silly, although now that I've said it, you can't get it out of your mind, can you? All right. Let's stick to the text. Let's do what Bible students are supposed to do. Let's let the word of God speak to us. So going back to the text, Esau comes into the tent, we're told, with great hunger. And the Hebrew word for hunger, or as my English translation said it, famished, is actually the word faint in Hebrew. It's just the word being fainting or being weak, physically speaking, weak. And the intonation is very easy to see. He's hungry. He's been working all day in the field, so hungry, in fact, that he's reached the point of physical weakness, of being faint with hunger. And that's not something surprising. I'm sure almost any of us have felt that at some point in time. In fact, working in the field will naturally produce that result. Remember something going back into Genesis way back, back to chapter 3. Do you remember God's curse in chapter 3 on the ground? When he spoke to Adam and woman in the garden, he told Adam from that moment forward, he and all men would now toil, as God said, toil all the days of your life, working the ground. That was God's pronouncement against the ground itself, the curse on the ground. And he goes on to say that you will bring forth bread by the sweat of your brow. Our physical labor will be done in difficulty as we try to sustain ourselves by the working of the land and by the produce of the land. So it's not going to be easy. The land's not going to give itself over to us easily. That's the nature of the curse. Anytime you've gone outside, worked your garden, worked your yard, or if you have a farm or something similar, and you've recognized how hard that labor is, you're getting firsthand experience with the curse on the ground. By the way, that's just the least of it, when you die physically, you're getting another experience of the curse on the earth because Adam's body came from the ground. The curse is on the ground. So therefore, our physical bodies now have that curse, that curse of death. Esau is just experiencing the curse in the way we all do. Now, he's entered the tent suffering from the physical consequences of the curse from Adam's sin. And he notices his brother Jacob now has a potential solution to his problem. And that, of course, is this meal that Jacob's been cooking. Esau refers to as red stuff. That's how my English version translates it. But in Hebrew, it's actually just red, red. Two different words for red in Hebrew, and they're actually very similar to the ear. They sound very similar. So it's sort of a play on words. The term in Hebrew is Adam, Edom. And Adam, Edom means red, red. Edom is the second word there. And that's why it says, henceforth, Esau became known as Edom. His name meant red in its own right, but now it takes a different meaning. Now, red in the sense of red food becomes what he's known for. That actually becomes a source of shame for him forevermore. That's Moses' point in making this commentary. Here's the moment where Esau started to be known as Edom in the sense of how children will throw out names at each other in the play yard, in the schoolyard, to mock one another. Well, here's a name that now attaches to Esau. So that's Moses telling us going in, something's about to happen, something ignominious, something that Esau will never live down. He's going to be known as red from now on. Esau doesn't even know what kind of food this is. Do you notice that? He's not attracted to it because he says, oh, you're cooking my favorite. It's more instinctive than that. More fleshly than that. It's just food. Like my teenage kids. Food. It doesn't really matter what it is. Because he doesn't know. He says red stuff. Whatever that stuff is, I need it now. It's almost primal, isn't it? On one level, this moment just resembles normal everyday life in a family, for the most part. If the situation had gone no farther than where we are right now, you wouldn't even be talking about it. I doubt scripture would have even recorded it. It's just a moment in the passing life of a family. But that's not where it ended, and that's why we're talking about it. Before we look at what follows, I want you to consider the circumstances of nomadic life in this day because there is some cultural background that helps us understand why this is happening or at least what's going on behind the scenes here. Think about Isaac for a moment, the father of these two young men. Isaac inherited all the wealth of Abraham, remember? Ishmael got a small pre-inheritance Portion as he was sent away with his mom Hagar that left everything for Isaac So Isaac has inherited a tremendous amount of wealth relatively speaking because Abraham was very wealthy So he has herds. He has servants and maids. He has other possessions He has an encampment that would have been comprised of multiple tents to house all of these people and tents for cooking and tents for cleaning and tents for whatever this is not one lone tent out on the plains This is an encampment of people with activity all around. So as Esau came in to the encampment from the field, he would have expected that a meal be served by the servants from probably the the cook tent at some appropriate point later in the day when the normal time for dinner was. So as we come into the text, it's important not to get too far ahead of the text and make some assumptions that aren't in the text. For example, don't assume that if he hadn't eaten this, he would have starved to death. Don't get ahead of yourself and assume this is somehow an urgent moment. It's not. It's just a normal moment. If he had been willing to wait for the normal mealtime, Esau would have been fed in the traditional way. So that begs a new question, though. Why is Jacob cooking? Well, one explanation is he's simply assisting in the preparation of the meals, and this may have been one of the ways he contributed in the camp. So maybe it's near mealtime and he's working. Or perhaps it's a long time between now and mealtime, and he simply didn't want to wait himself. So he made something to eat. A third reason that's often suggested, it may actually be the right one, is that this was a staged opportunity on Jacob's part. He knew something of his brother. He knew his patterns. He knew his tendency. He knew his weaknesses. And he knew that if he had food ready at the right moment, that he may have an opportunity to make something happen. We'll leave that as an open question because, frankly, there's no way in the text to resolve it. But all of those are possible. Now, Esau doesn't have a pantry of ready-made food in this day and age. You didn't walk in and pull out the bag of chips to hold you over till dinner time. There wasn't an easy source of food, and food preparation took time. So he really was facing a situation where he had to wait for dinner or he could eat what his brother had. That was his only choice. Jacob's food is a quicker solution. So when Esau requests the food, he asks in a rather unique way. He says, let me have a swallow of that red stuff or red, red. The word swallow is an uncommon word in Hebrew. This is the only time in the entire Old Testament, the only time in the Bible, when this particular word is used in Hebrew. And it could most literally be translated greedy gulp. It's stuff food down a throat which we often say that ourselves sometimes as an exaggeration, right? That's what he's asking for. It conveys a sense that Esau is so driven by his flesh, by his physical needs, so greedy that he's reached the point where he's willing to stuff an unknown food down his throat in a grotesque way. So now Jacob, sensing that Esau is completely consumed by the needs of his flesh, he suggests that they should enter into a bargain over the food. So in verse 31, Jacob says, First, sell me your birthright. Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die, so of what use then is the birthright to me? I act it out just because I think that's what I hear in my head. You can hear it another way, I guess. But, so Jacob makes the offer. He says, I will give you what you want if you give me what I want. Basic Bargaining. Esau can have the stew, but he has to sell Jacob his birthright. Now this is a bizarre deal, right? This—who would sell their birthright for anything that worthless? I mean, let's be clear on what Jacob is suggesting. Esau is the firstborn, and therefore he holds the birthright in Isaac's family right now. Later in the law, when the law is given through Moses, centuries later, God codifies this Eastern tradition of birthrights in families. And he says it this way in Deuteronomy twenty-one seventeen, He says, But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength, and to him belongs the right of the firstborn. So the birthright that Esau is holding entitles Esau to a double portion of of Isaac's inheritance. He had a double portion of the inheritance, a double portion of whatever Isaac owns, the servants, the livestock, land, etc. Now, in Isaac's case, the birthright comes with an additional special bonus feature, which we've talked about in here already. That is that the one who holds the birthright in Isaac's family will also inherit God's covenant. The blessings and promises of the covenant first given to Abraham will transfer, God has said, they are inheritable and they will always go to the one with the birthright. So this now adds an extra degree of importance to the birthright. And by the way, God's promises were all or nothing. They weren't split between the boys. So it's not like the rest of the property where there's a double portion, but the other child still gets something. In the case of God's covenant, it's all or nothing. And that goes where the birthright goes. And by tradition, by the way, the oldest also held the right to be the patriarch in the family after dad died. So that person would also become the leader of the clan and all the others in the clan, all the other sons and their respective families had to obey the leader in the family, take their marching orders from that individual. So all of that's on the line potentially. So Jacob is suggesting to Esau, you give me all of that for a bowl of stew. If Esau were to agree to this, he would no longer receive the double portion from his father's inheritance. He no longer potentially would be the leader of the clan and he would not receive God's promises in the covenant. So, naturally, Esau laughs at the suggestion and kicks his brother out of the tent and turns it down instantly, right? No, amazingly, Esau says, well, I'm about to die, so what good is his birthright anyway? Okay, taking... His comments one way, they're actually literally true. He's saying literally, if I were to die prior to my dad dying, well, then I don't inherit anything. I don't get the value of a birthright. If he died before Isaac, then the birthright would move to Jacob by default. So in a sense, what he's saying is, well, if I don't get this food, I'm going to die. And if I die, well, then what good is the birthright anyway? So I might as well just sell what I have to get the food because it won't matter. Well, the response is bizarre because he's not in danger of dying. You have to read his response there with a sarcastic tone. We've all heard similar things said in our own families. I'm sure if you have teenagers, you have heard this weekly, right? I have. The children complain, "Oh, I'm going to die unless I eat right now." You know, I'm going to die if I have to go out in that dress. I'm going to die if they see me looking like this, right? It's just the way we talk. No one looks at that moment and says, "Really, you're going to die, honey? Call 911." <laughs> No, it's, it's, it's an exaggeration. And Esau's suggestion is something of the same here. He's saying, I'm dying of hunger. So if it's meant as a exaggeration, as a non-literal statement, then we're back to square one, right? What kind of person would even think to make such a bargain? In fact, let's back it up a step. What in the world made Jacob think that Esau would even agree to something like this? Have you thought about that? What was going on in his head? For example, would you consider walking next door to your next door neighbor's house, carrying a bowl of your finest Texas chili, and then suggest to the person who answers the door, would you sell me your house in exchange for this chili? Now, if you, if you knew they were going to do it, you'd do it in a heartbeat, right? It's a good deal. But what would make you think that they would do that? You see the problem? Why did he even ask the question? So we can make, I think, a reasonable assumption about what was going on in Jacob's head. Something had given Jacob the reason or the feeling that his brother might be inclined to make such a deal. If that's true, then maybe that takes us back to the earlier question of why was Jacob cooking? It would seem to suggest, and I have to acknowledge this is a bit of supposition here. We can't be definitive about any of this, but it would seem to suggest that he had understood something about Esau and about his nature and his character and his patterns and his habits and his desires And he comes to the conclusion that if I come to him with food at the right moment, he might actually be willing to put his birthright aside for a good meal. So let's see how this deal goes down. Verse 33, Jacob said, first, swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. So Jacob says, swear to me first. The literal Hebrew reads, swear to me today. Swear to me now. Swear to me right here and now. This starts to form a picture in our mind of what was actually playing out in that moment as they were talking to one another. After Jacob suggested the deal and the original offer, and Esau made his little flippant, exaggerated statement about, oh, I'll die anyway, so what? I might as well. He may, in the same moment as he was making that statement, he may have started to reach for the stew. Can you see this in your mind's eye? And then at that moment, Jacob just pulls it back. Swear to me first. Are you serious? I'm serious. And as he makes that request, swear to me first, Jacob has sensed an opening and he's now going to make it official. So he says to him, In this culture, when you swear an oath, in the sense of what's being described here, it's a solemn, serious commitment that's being created. If you were to swear an oath in that culture and then do something in violation of your oath, it's punishable by death. And Dad, Isaac, would have been the man to carry out that punishment or to enforce it. People did not make oaths over light things or without serious commitment. They couldn't. They couldn't afford to. And, by the way, you couldn't lie about the fact that you were in an oath because that was also punishable by death. So Jacob's testimony concerning Esau's oath would have been enough to make the deal binding. They don't need a third party in this room in order to have that kind of assurance. So the text here tells us Esau did what was requested. He took the oath. He swore that he was selling his birthright for the exchange of this stew. And in that moment, the birthright became Jacob's. Done. It's over. Jacob owns the birthright as of this moment in the text. And in ancient Eastern culture, a son could, in fact, sell their birthright. There are evidence in the Nuzi tablets, which is an ancient record of how life was lived in the society of this part of the world in ancient times, ancient Mesopotamia. And in the Newsy tablets, there are records of people selling their birthright. So we have precedence of the reality of this, of it, of it actually happening. So this is a legitimate transaction. The patriarch himself, Isaac himself, would have been bound respect this transaction. Now, does this text suggest to us at this point that Jacob has done anything wrong? Just based on what we've read, forgetting for a moment, anything you've heard outside of the text. Do you have any reason to look at this right now and indict Jacob for what's happened? Did he trick his brother? When you trick someone, don't you have to speak in veiled ways? Don't you have to? obscure the truth? Don't you have to do something to hide details so that people don't know what's really happening? And isn't that what a trick requires? If you just state it plainly, I give you stew, you give me birthright, done deal. Is that a trick? Especially when Esau had every opportunity in the moment to say, ah, no, I don't want to do that. Instead, Esau said, sure. There's no subterfuge here. There's no sleight of hand. There's no falseness. There's nothing here that would suggest Jacob did anything except take advantage of an opportunity to get something he wanted. Now, I'm not saying Esau is going to be happy about this when it's all said and done, but that doesn't make it a trick just because you don't like the deal you made. You ever bought a car you regretted? Ever paid too much for a house? Ever thought, you know, that was a dumb deal? Do you go around telling everyone you were tricked? Well, but a car dealer, you usually do, but it's probably not as much of a trick as you think. We tend to project that on the other person because we feel taken, but the reality is we signed our name, we made the deal, we walked away. That's what's happened here. Now that the deal has been done, how do we explain Esau's behavior? Isn't that really the hardest question to answer? Isn't that the one that's right at the center of all of this? What in the world is this guy thinking to do this deal? Well, let's assume for a moment that he's not mentally ill and that he's not a complete idiot. Because those are two potential explanations, but scripture really doesn't suggest that those are The cause, right? So the guy has rational capability to think straight, and he is not, in some sense, ill. So what would cause him to make such a deal? Well, there are two possible explanations, as far as I can see. First, you might assume he didn't think the deal was binding. Perhaps he thought this deal wasn't going to hold up, that Dad would step in and say he doesn't want to honor that deal, or that Dad would somehow just give the birthright to Esau anyway. After all, he is Dad's favorite. And therefore you would then assume Esau's just playing along. Yeah, you want me to swear? Fine, I'll swear. I'll give you the birthright. Okay, give me your stew, you crazy. That it's not being taken seriously in the process. Well, there's a problem with that view, though. The Scripture testifies to us, in what we've already read, that the birthright was transferred in that moment by means of an oath. When Jacob insisted on the oath, Esau knew what he was doing, and he knew it was binding. You cannot... Go later to your car dealer after you've signed the paperwork to take the car and tell them, you know, I thought we were just joking. <laughs> I thought you just want me to take the car for a while and bring it back, right? And they're going to look at you and say, you know what, I don't know what was going on in your head, mister, but look what your signature says. You know what you were signing. You can't tell me later it was a joke or it was misunderstood. That's the effect of an oath. So both parties knew this was a real deal. And by the way, we get confirmation of that later in chapter 27. There's a moment in chapter 27 when Esau is complaining to his dad about the fact that he's lost these things. And of course, we'll have to come and study that moment in detail when we get there. But you can just jump ahead, flip a page or two, and look at Genesis 27, verse 36. And Esau is speaking to his dad. Then he said, "'Is he not rightly named Jacob? "'For he has supplanted me these two times.'" He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. As I said, we'll cover that in detail later. But just by Esau's own words, he makes clear that he knew in that earlier moment the birthright had been transferred. He's not confused. So if Esau knew that this whole transaction was binding, why did he do it? What's our second explanation? Well, the only other explanation I would offer you is that Esau considered the stew to be more valuable to him than the birthright. How little regard would Esau have to have had for that birthright in order for him to view stew as more valuable? Well, the best answer we get is in verse 34. In chapter 25, verse 34, we're told Esau despised his birthright. The word in Hebrew for despised is to have contempt or to have disdain for something. We have a phrase in English that we use sometimes that conveys a similar idea. We say, I couldn't care less. That's what he's saying in a sense. I I despise the birthright. I have no consideration, no interest in it. It's contemptible to me. Now, why would he despise something so valuable? Well, think about it for a moment. What did he stand to inherit? Well, the birthright gave him a double portion of the father's property. But Isaac doesn't own any land. Remember? Remember? Dad and his granddad, Abraham, have been wanderers. They have purposely, consciously rejected ownership of the land that they're wandering on because for them, this was not the land of their inheritance. Their faith told them that God's promises of a future inheritance in the land would not be realized, could not be materialized until a day in which they were resurrected and the Lord was reigning on earth with them, and that that would be the moment of the true inheritance. And we covered this at an earlier point, and we'll come back to it at several times in the course of this study. But their wandering lifestyle was proof to us, according to Hebrews 11, that they gave no regard to their current surroundings because they knew they would die without receiving any of it. But only in a future life would they see the rewards God promised. So why bother investing in the world around them? It was going to burn up anyway. So, looking at it from Esau's point of view, I get a double portion of Nothing. Well, okay, what about the sheep? Well, what does Esau do for a living? He's a man of the field. He's a farmer. He's not a sheep herder. What good are sheep to a farmer? They just eat what you're trying to grow. As a sheep herder, you've got to move around to keep the pastures green. A farmer wants to stay put. So, Dad, this is great. Dad's got no land. Dad's got sheep, and I'm a farmer. Double portion of that. Big deal. I'd rather have your stew. You see? What if your father's inheritance consisted entirely of musical instruments and you didn't know how to play a note? For what we know of him and what we see in his family's life, there's really very little value attached to this inheritance. Jacob knew his brother held his father's inheritance in low regard. Wouldn't you have expected that somehow in the course of their relationship that would have come out in conversation? And sure enough, he must have picked up on that. But there is the matter of the right to rule over the clan. Well, that's not trivial, and he's giving that up too. But in traditional terms, the right to rule over the clan was transferred by the patriarch in the form of a blessing spoken from the deathbed of the patriarch. So though it was normally one that transferred with the birthright to the oldest, there wasn't an automatic there. The blessing of the father was the means of transferring the leadership role in the clan. And so we could consider that perhaps in this case, Esau expected that dad would still give him the right to be leader because dad favored him, regardless of where the birthright goes. And that is a possibility. You could have seen that happen in the culture. So as the patriarch nears the end of his life, he'll pronounce a blessing on the child, on all his children, but one of them will receive the preeminent blessing. And by that blessing, they also receive the right to be ruler of the clan. You notice in the verse we read from chapter 27, that blessing will also go to Jacob even though Esau expected it to come to him. Now, once that blessing is pronounced, when we get there, we'll notice that as Isaac gives this blessing out, it can't be retrieved once it's been given. This would be something like the resignation of President Nixon and the assumption of power by President Ford. If Nixon had pronounced his resignation and then walked out of the Oval Office, he couldn't have changed his mind the next day and said, you know what, I want that job back. It doesn't work that way. It's transferred. It's somebody else's now. Similarly, as the blessing of Isaac is pronounced on these children, it transfers, and he can't get it back. And then finally, there's the issue of God's promises, the covenant, and who would inherit that. The promises, we've learned, are the real treasure in Isaac's inheritance. And the fact that Isaac has no land in the earthly realm is directly a result of the promises God spoke To Abraham and Isaac, right? The reason he's rejected owning land is because he's waiting for these other promises. So it's an interesting dilemma. The real worth of his inheritance is future almost entirely. Esau has no regard for his birthright because Esau has no regard for God's promises. Abraham and Isaac had been given a promise from God of certain things to come, but Esau could not accept that promise. He did not trust in God's Word. He was so flesh-driven that the thought of a good meal mattered more to him than the Word of God, than the promises God had spoken. In a word, he had no faith. No faith in God's promises. That's why Hebrews 11 defines faith not as belief in Christ, but as a greater principle even than that. Belief in God's promises, the hope of things to come, the assurance of things not seen, a confidence that the things God has said will be are. Of course, Christ's work on the cross is the thing that saves you from eternal punishment. But as we sit here right now, we don't have a way to prove that, do we? The proof will come when we die. So we have to take on faith the assurance that those words will be true when we die. That God has, in fact, paid our price. That in reality, we will not pay it again on our own behalf. That we can rest in that and trust in nothing else. But there's no proof except the word of God. That's all that's required for someone of faith. But it's never enough for someone without faith. Now, what would you say if I walked up to you and I suggest you would make a bargain similar to the one that Jacob and Esau made? I'll give you a nice meal, a good Texas chili, or maybe I'll do better. I'll give you a nice watch. Or while we're at it, why don't we just go further? I'll give you a car. I'll give you a nice house. I'll give you all of them. But the exchange is, I want your future inheritance in the kingdom of God. Whatever Christ has set aside for you, whatever you stand to inherit, you are going to give me all of that then. You know, Jesus was offered a similar bargain by the enemy when he was in the wilderness. Do you remember that? Now, would you make that deal? It really would come down to what you believe, wouldn't it? If you believe the Bible's teaching concerning an internal inheritance, you would be crazy to make that deal. But if you had doubts about that, you might actually entertain it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 9, he says, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. For just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and have not entered the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. That's a great verse to remember. What God has prepared for you and I in our eternal inheritance are things eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and have not even entered into the heart of man. It's why we can stand today and say that what God has prepared for the believer we can't even imagine in all its glory. And if you are saved by grace, if you are, as the Bible calls us, a child of God, a believer in Jesus Christ, and in the promises God has made to us by his son, then you wouldn't trade that coming inheritance for anything that you could find on this earth, because what's coming is greater than anything you've ever seen. But if you view the promises of God as meaningless or the Bible as worthless, then you're going to make that deal because you're trading away nothing of value, or so it seems you'd repeat the words of Esau. When he said, what good are these things if I die? The unbeliever only knows this world. This is it. Like you've heard me say before, if you're an unbeliever, this world is as good as it gets. If you're a believer, this world is as bad as it gets. But the unbeliever only knows that death brings an end. And so they have no hope for anything more to come. So they trust only what they can see in this world. Their trust remains here. They have no plans for eternity. They don't invest in anything beyond the here and now. They have no hope. So they take what they can get and they'll trade anything of supposed eternal value for what they can get in the here and now because this future thing doesn't exist as far as they're concerned, or at least they have no confidence in it. Esau, we're told, was willing to solve the problem of the earthly curse that he experienced through the toil of the work and the hunger that it produced. He was willing to solve that problem with an earthly solution. And he was willing to trade the eternal solution, which is actually the real solution, for that earthly one, because he didn't believe the other even existed. But as believers, we do exactly the opposite. We are reminded in Scripture that nothing in this life is worth trading for our internal inheritance. In fact, we are told to trade everything in this life, just like Abraham and Isaac did, to ensure that our inheritance is secure in the eternal realm. We do that by faith, and we do that by self-sacrifice and obedience. Jesus summed it up with a parable in one verse in Matthew. Matthew 13:44. he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Learning of the fact that by faith we can have an eternal inheritance is equivalent to discovering this treasure hidden in a field. It's hidden because we don't see it today. It's only going to be revealed to us in a future life. But we know it's coming, and we know where it is. In the meantime, we go away in joy over that reality, and we work the rest of our life here on earth to take everything that we have and put it to work to obtain that field. Now, you know I'm not talking about working to obtain the salvation. That was the way by which we came to know that we had an inheritance, and God did the work for us in that regard. But now that we are in the family of God by faith, the work turns to earning that treasure, serving a master who will please us on that day by how he responds to our work. But we wouldn't trade anything in this world for that, would we? What's scary, though, is how often we do it without even thinking about it, without ever consciously deciding we want to make a trade. We just wake up one day and we've been trading. Next week, we're going to move on in the story. We'll come back to these events when we get to chapter 27. And when we do, we have one more question we never addressed today, which we'll have to look at in that chapter. And that is, where does God's purposes fit in all this? Is Jacob and Esau working against God's interest, or are they just falling in line with them? And how is God at work in all of these things? We'll learn that more in chapter 27. Father, thank you, Father, for the reminder out of your word today that our faith, Father, has produced the opportunity to serve you in that faith and in obedience for the chance to receive your blessings and honor in that future day. We knew it was true when we walked in this door. We we have understood it from the text of scripture in weeks past, but we don't want to make a trade, Father. We don't want to sit at the, at the footstep of the kingdom only to realize we gave up so much by what we chose to take advantage of here. I, I pray, Father, you give us a heart and eyes for eternity so that we're willing every day to give up anything this world would offer if that's what it takes so that we might be ready to ex- receive a greater inheritance. We do this not because of a greed or a selfish desire, Father. We serve out of a heart to please you and to serve you regardless of what it is you would give us in return. Not, not for any reason except because you loved us first. But we also know as you promised, Father, that you give good gifts more so than even we could. And you've used those in your word, Father, to help inspire us and motivate us to be faithful. To be mindful of eternity and not to look at only the here and now. Thank you for that reminder. As we remind ourselves, Father, of the work you did on the cross through the communion this morning. Turn our hearts not only back into that moment, into the memory of your son's sacrifice, but also give us hearts to look forward, Father, into ways that we will now live a holy and pleasing life as a sacrifice to you. I pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.